Building Trust in Government is a monthly podcast sponsored by MITRE and its Center for Data-Driven Policy, informing national policy with objective, nonpartisan insights. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the podcast series, Building Trust in Government, a conversation about creating outcomes through policy and partnerships. I'm Jim Cook, MITRE Vice President for Strategic Engagement and Partnerships and the Executive Chair for MITRE's Center for Data-Driven Policy. Today's conversation is going to focus on the President's Management Agenda Initiative. My guest today is Terry Gerton, President and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. Prior to joining NAPA in 2017, Terry spent more than a decade in the Senior Executive Service with the Departments of Labor and Defense and has 20 years of service as an active duty Army officer. Thanks for joining us today, Terry. Jim, it's great to be here. Thank you. So this President's Management Agenda initiative was launched with the release of a vision for modernizing the federal government. Many of the priorities in the PMA are not new issues. They've appeared in the PMAs of past administrations. So one question, Terry, I'd like to ask you to get your thoughts on is this. Given that some of these challenges are not new, where do you think or how important do you think it is that the fundamental policy issues are tackled in order to facilitate or enable implementation of some of these initiatives? Well, I, you raise a great point about policy uh, and implementation and how they need to go hand in hand. Um, you know, NAPA's been working on these issues for a long time, but our big sort of policy and implementation initiative is our grand challenges in public administration that we rolled out a couple of years ago. <clears throat> And they align really closely with the PMA or the PMA aligns really closely with them, depending on which way you want to view it from. And we have a grand challenge to modernize and reinvigorate the public service. Obviously, that's about building a workforce for the future and all of the things you need to do to create a system that is attractive to the best and brightest, that motivates and develops them, and that makes sure that you have the people with the skills who can deliver on the rest of the agenda. We have a grand challenge to promote social equity. And one of the things that I think is really cool in this PMA vision, at least, is that it's got a set of values that go along with it. And social equity is a core value there. So it gives a different perspective on the the policies and, and practices for improving how government works, not just for the sake of being more efficient, um, to be more efficient, but really to be more efficient and effective so that we have an impact on a more equitable society. Um, And we have a grand challenge to build resilient communities. When NAFA talks about resilient communities, we're not just talking about climate resilience, but we're talking about strong and healthy communities that invest in and promote the well-being of their people in a really integrated way, which aligns really nicely with the values that are espoused in the PMA vision. We want a more equitable and, and more healthy economy and community. And then um, we have another one that's about developing new approaches to public governance and engagement. And that I think is where the customer experience perspective really um, fits. If we design our government processes from the perspective of meeting the needs of our customer versus meeting our own administrative needs, that could dramatically change how we do the business of government. So I think all three of the PMA vision priorities, uh, workforce, customer experience, and government operations are completely integrated and dependent on each other. And then approving government, uh, improving government effectiveness and improving customer experience are kind of two sides of the same coin that rely on uh, the workforce and the talented uh, perspectives that you need of the people in government to actually deliver the goods. 
So I, I think there's this really interesting collection, but also integration of ideas and principles that go into this PMA that then start to inform policy and practice. So you cited a, a, a number of really great examples where I think the intent in a PMA is to really drive transformative change. So can you say a little bit about the role that you believe or how do you think it's best to approach this in a way that we create that change through policy rather than having policy exist as a um, fundamental constraint on change? I think it starts with your perspective about why do we do the things that we do in government? Um, and ostensibly, especially at the federal level, our programs are about delivering um, benefits or um, supporting uh, our constituents across a variety of spaces. But fundamentally, we design the programs to make it easier to manage as opposed to designing them for outcomes. So what I think this PMA has the potential to do is change the starting point for policy discussions. Why are we doing the things that we are suggesting we do? So if we're gonna change government backend processes, acquisition, budget, all of those kinds of things that kind of happen behind the door, if we're gonna change those, why are we changing them? Well, if we're changing them so that we deliver better services and get better outcomes, then that's the policy objective but it can reshape how we integrate and think about how we design the processes for implementation on the back end. So that's where I think there's a different spin on this PMA than I've seen in many of the others, which were all really focused on improving execution of government programs, being more efficient, being more cost-effective. But this PMA says we wanna be more efficient, we wanna be more cost-effective because we want to deliver better outcomes in this way. And so I think that's going to change how people designing the implementation um, think about what the rules need to be of the programs that are going to be implemented to support the policy. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think in this PMA, there's some clear intent conveyed and, and a real focus on outcomes. Um, but just to kind of build on the point you just made, so is there anything that we can learn from the experiences that we've been through in COVID? There were a lot of changes that were forced as a result of that situation, some of which involved um, either uh, policy adjustments or waiving certain policies that had been in place longstanding in order to get something done, especially in terms of providing services to the public. Do you think there's anything that we can learn from that in terms of how to drive change and whether there's changes that you saw occur as a result of COVID that ought to be codified in policy. The list of lessons learned during COVID is probably, you know, <laughs> a thousand pages long, right? But there is one that I think is especially important and that Napa is really leaning into. And that is uh, COVID forced us all to recognize that the federal government isn't the one actually on the front lines of a lot of public service delivery. Right. It is the federal government's partners in state and local governments and their partners in the nonprofit space and even industry partners who actually deliver government services to most people. So I think the most important policy lesson we all learned is that we cannot forget going forward that federal assistance programs work best when they're coordinated on the front end with those partners when the rules are negotiated in advance, when the federal government says, how can we get this money to you 
in a way that's going to make it easier for you, state, county, local government, to deliver the services and create the outcomes that we all intend, whether that's public health, public services, um, social services, housing, education, any of it. And we saw that with the first tranche of uh, assistance money that went out. Um, and what we heard back from states and localities was, wait a minute, we don't understand those rules. It would be much more helpful if you changed them and, and, and gave us some different guidance. We were able to incorporate that new guidance in the second round. And the second round of programs has been much more effective. So this idea that the federal government needs to engage with its delivery partners, states and localities, uh, uh, governments there, but also the, the nonprofit and industry sectors to make sure we do smart program design on the front end to optimize outcomes on the back end is a lesson we cannot forget. And our Center for Intergovernmental Partnerships is right in the middle of this, really creating these opportunities for conversation between agencies at all levels of government to help identify innovations in program delivery, discuss these kinds of systematic changes and improve how our whole government system can function. So you've talked about this integration, not just within the federal government, between federal, state and local government. Can you say a little bit more about agility also? Because it seems to me that's one of the other lessons coming out of COVID is the um, understanding how we create more agile government and what are some of the policy implications there? Well, you're absolutely right. And of course we have another center for that, our Agile Government Center, which is trying to take these principles of agile software development, scrums and rapid iteration and customer experience and turn them into management principles. <clears throat> and perhaps the most, I, I think there's probably two that come out as being most important. The first is this idea of focus on the customer. How does the customer receive these kinds of services and how do they want to receive them in a way that we can make, uh, make it easy for them to access this. You saw it with the child tax credit where it was a benefit to people who'd never filed taxes. Well, how do you find the people who've never, found, never filed their taxes to make sure that they know that they're eligible for this important benefit, right? So again, designing, customer, designing programs from the customer experience to start with is a key principle of Agile. And the second, um, I think that's really important coming out of COVID is rapid iteration for change. Um, so get something, get something fast, get it out there and then adjust. Don't wait till you can deliver the perfect product. And a great example of that was the federal government's um, website where you could order your at-home COVID tests, right? They put it out, they put it out fast. They thought about it from the customer perspective and it went off pretty much without a hitch. They were able to adjust really quickly. And that's a great example of applying agile principles to these kinds of government service delivery problems. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks, Terry. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about workforce, customer experience, and some of the other specific priorities in the president's management agenda. I'm Jim Cook, and you're listening to Building Trust in Government. Policymakers are faced with turning workable ideas into actionable policies. MITRE's Center for Data-Driven Policy delivers objective, evidence-based, nonpartisan insights to government policymaking. We work in the public interest and serve as a bridge across government, industry, and academia. MITRE applies a whole-of-nation approach to our biggest challenges in national security, science and technology, cyber, and domestic policy. At MITRE, our mission is solving problems for a safer world. 
Discover how at MITRE.org slash Policy Center. We're back now on Building Trust in Government. I'm Jim Cook with MITRE Center for Data-Driven Policy, along with Terry Gurton, President and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. Terry, let's build on some of the discussion from the first segment and drill down a little bit on a couple of specific topics. You've been very active on workforce. In fact, you recently testified before the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, Subcommittee on Government Operations and Border Management on Workforce. What are some of the policy recommendations you've made that you think present opportunities to support and enable the federal workforce better? Like the list of lessons learned in COVID, Jim, this is a really <laughs> long list. Um, but let me pick a couple. Um, Napa has done a lot of research uh, in the future of the federal civil service. Um, and I would point folks to our no time to wait papers and also our um, congressionally directed assessment of the Office of Personnel Management that was delivered last March. But all of that together um, creates a really different vision for the federal civil service. We imagine OPM as the center for policy development and learning and alignment, less focused on compliance and more focused on data-informed risk management approach to, to managing the federal civil service. And then a federated system that allows every agency's chief human capital officer to be the leader for um, recruiting and retaining the talent necessary to accomplish that agency's mission because agency missions are incredibly varied and the kind of people that you need to perform those missions are varied and they respond to different incentives and they have different career objectives. So at the, at the core of it is a really different vision for how we should manage this incredible workforce. Um, but the second piece of it that I really think is important is this idea of moving from skills and competencies that are vested in a position and recruiting individuals for a classified, you know, a, a codified and, and documented position to a, to a real talent management approach, which would envision sort of broad lines of work where you would recruit individuals for potential where you'd intentionally train and develop them, where the competencies would be resident in the person, and there would be talent management boards or groups that would make sure that there was intentional career development. We have to shift away from a focus on position fill to a concept of a talented workforce that we train and develop to accomplish the mission of the organization. I'm not optimistic that that's going to happen anytime soon, but I think setting this vision kind of creates a shining light out there that we can start to adapt toward um, until there is um, a consensus around comprehensive civil service reform. So another important topic that I know you've worked on in the PMA's customer experience, and you've talked about it already in this show today. There's two policy areas in particular that I think jump out at me in the PMA. One is the need to, in order to provide a customer experience, including an equitable customer experience, needing to know more about your customers. So that speaks to the acquisition and collection and analysis of data. And there's obviously some policy opportunities there around how certain data is collected and used. The other one is around this focus on life events. Can you say a little bit about your thoughts on where you think the policy the real policy focus ought to be on those two aspects of customer experience, collection and analysis of data and moving towards a life events model. 
Well, as we said at the on the front segment, just changing the focus from compliance in government programs to the experience of the customer in government programs is a radical shift. I mean, as as an example, think about how you engage with Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. Amazon knows your browsing history, your buying history. It has your credit card. It knows you well enough to suggest things you might like, right? And it gives you one day delivery and quick click checkout. You accept that from Amazon because you're willing to you're willing to trade some security to Amazon because you trust them for fast, reliable, secure service. If I was the government and I asked you for that information, would you sign up? Probably not. <laughs> because people don't trust the government to, to maintain that same level of security. So from a policy perspective, if we start with customer experience, we have a lot of work to do on the back end to be able to deliver that kind of seamless, secure, trusted uh, response to the customer. The life events model is one way, but we've got to get after the back end technology and individual uh, workforce competencies to deliver that level of service. But we need to do it because that level of service is core to increasing trust in government. So that cus the, the customers of government believe that the government can be trusted to deliver the services in a secure way. So it's a classic case of where policy on the front end informs the implementation steps that need to be taken on the back end. Mm -hmm. And you think that and you, you think that the primary barrier is a sense that the data will not be secure. You think there's anything else at play that should be addressed? Well, we have a lot to do to just simply invest in the technology that can deliver that kind of experience. Um, and the, our ability to deliver that technology is really a function kind of of our antiquated annual budget, budget and appropriations process, right? We, we can't design long-term IT investments because we only get our IT investment money on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's structural investment that needs to be made. There's workforce training and development that needs to be funded. Um, and then there's design principles, right? that need to be um, engaged so that we can start to roll out these kinds of test and learn engagements where citizens can engage with their governments through these kinds of tools and gradually then begin to build confidence in the government's ability to provide that level of service. You also talked about data integration. That's a key piece on the back end. You know, so, so much of what goes into that kind of customer experience is uh, a single point of entry for administrative data, right? Once you enter your credit card into Amazon, it doesn't forget who you are. Well, in the government, you've got to enter your personal data at every different portal. Can we get to a point where we can securely share that kind of personal administrative data on the back end so that you have a seamless customer experience across the variety of government programs that are going to try to deliver services to you? It, it's not an easy problem, but if we really are focused on that point of service delivery, it can radically change how we do the integration on the back end. So you're talking, you're touching on a lot of the foundational things that also appear in a PMA. One that uh, that has been there before and is again a focus in this PMA is on acquisition and looking at the acquisition system and continuing to, to focus on ways to reform or change or modernize the acquisition system. 
Can you say a little bit about your thoughts on how that you see that from a policy perspective, either being a barrier or what needs to be done to really move forward and, and reform that system? It gives us a really different perspective on acquisition reform. Again, in the past, it's been simplifying the process to get best value for the government. But this PMA says something really different. It says we want to leverage the government's buying power to deliver more equitable outcomes for people and communities that have been left behind. So what that does in my mind, it doesn't necessarily change the process, but it changes the calculation that goes into a best value acquisition. It's not just now about cost or compliance. It's now about if we spend this money to buy this thing or this service, are we doing it in a way that builds the economic well-being of the community that we're buying it from? And that's a radically different approach to what government can do through acquisition. I think that that is a hugely important factor here, and it doesn't get a lot of attention because we talk about acquisition reform and, you know, there's, again, thousands and thousands of pages that have been written about how to simplify and modernize and, and make more responsive the acquisition system. I think it's really important here that we're saying it's not just about cost and performance. It's about economic community outcome in our acquisition process. So I have one final question for you in about the last minute we have available here. Um, this is a topic that I know we both care a great deal about, and that is evidence-based policymaking and decision-making. So this is mentioned in the PMA again. But in today's environment, especially with the amount of misinformation and disinformation uh, and, um, and concerns about trust of sources, how do we create a more evidence-based policy environment? What are some of the things that you would focus on? I think it's a super important question. It's like water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink, right? We have lots and lots and lots and lots of data and evidence, but we do not have it in easily accessible, integrated, connected ways that can say, you know, if you give someone housing support, for example, how does that affect their, um, their ability to get a job? How does that affect their child's education performance? How does that affect their, um, their dependency on other sorts of assistance programs? We have no kind of integrated data like that. So to say that we want evidence-based policymaking is easy to say and really hard to do. Again, it, it informs a need for deliberate integration of these kinds of data sets for some serious knowledge building and dissemination modes and mechanisms so that researchers can find this data, so that learning agendas can be developed, so that uh, program designers can, and evaluators can see it and understand. If we, if we mean what we say about an evidence-informed policy agenda, we have a lot of work to do to put that evidence together in a way that actually makes sense. Thanks, Terry. I'd like to thank our special guest today, Terry Gurton, President and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. I invite our listeners to tune in again next month, where we'll have another episode of Building Trust in Government. And we will come back to this topic at some point in the future because the PMA is an important ongoing focus of our listeners. I'm Jim Cook. You're listening to Building Trust in Government, brought to you by MITRE's Center for Data-Driven Policy on Federal News Network. 
Building Trust in Government is sponsored by MITRE and its Center for Data-Driven Policy, bringing evidence-based insights to government policymaking. Discover more at MITRE.org slash policy center.